Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue visited California this past week, and he got an earful from Central Valley farmers about the shortage of farm labor, immigration issues, and, of course, the ongoing tariff disputes. Fueling those concerns, a new report out that shows California's farmers could lose $3.3 billion a year due to any retaliatory tariffs. A California jury has awarded a school groundskeeper $289 million for his cancer illness, and that jury held Monsanto and its glyphosate weed-killing products liable for those damages. How close are we to consuming lab-grown meat? It's closer than you might think. We have that report. Also, we remember a beloved local farm advisor who passed recently. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue had a busy week in California touring Central Valley farms. Visiting a dairy farm, Perdue learned that 20% of the cheese produced here goes to Mexico and it's being threatened by the U.S.-Mexico trade dispute. Almond growers also let Perdue know in no uncertain terms that the uncertainty for almond growers is great this year. David Long is an almond grower in the Central Valley. He told KFSN News in Fresno that the almond industry is the most unsold it has ever been at this point in time. Purdue was also asked about immigration and farm labor issues. He said the best deal out there was a provision that would allow half a million migrants to apply for green cards, but they would first have to return to their home country. California Congressman Jim Costa was right there sitting next to Sonny Purdue, and he told the secretary 500,000 nationwide doesn't come close to solving maybe half of what California really needs in the way of farm workers. And the same day Purdue is visiting these farms, the University of California Ag and Natural Resources Agricultural Issues Center released a new report. It estimates the higher tariffs could cost major U.S. fruit and nut industries $2.6 billion per year in exports to countries that are imposing the higher tariffs, or as much as $3.3 billion by reducing prices in alternative markets. For example, the study cites almonds as losing possibly $1.5 billion due to the decline in U.S. prices due to the tariff increases in affected markets. Pistachios, $384 million in revenue loss. Walnuts, $315 million in revenue loss. Sweet cherries down $160 million. Oranges down $133 million. Table grapes down $86 million. And raisins would be down $26 million. Purdue told Fox News in Fresno for the farmers to just hang in there. These tariff battles are like being on a diet. First of all, we got to acknowledge that there is legitimate anxiety over the tariffs and the pain they're caused. I've kind of used a metaphor that I can personally identify with. It's a little bit like weight loss. If you're overweight and you go on a diet, it's kind of painful to start with, but you're healthier in the end. That's exactly what President Trump's message is and his goal is. China has not been playing by the rules for years, and we've allowed year after year them to get away, away with that. And frankly, we got barriers across the world, not just in China, but in the European Union, if we turned our farmers loose in America, they would own the market internationally. And that's why we see these protectionists, some tariffs, some non-tariff barriers in other countries. President Trump's saying is enough enough. If you want free trade, let's have fair trade. And that's the ultimate goal of, of bringing people to the table to say, even our friends like Mexico and Canada, bring them to the table and said, you know, it's kind of till 
tilted here. Let's level this playing field and allow our producers to compete competitively uh, with yours, and we'll be fine. We need some wins. Hopefully, Mexico will uh, uh, will come to an agreement very soon. Uh, maybe good uh, conversation with Japan and get some things done. Farmers will know that President Trump's strategy and his proposal here to make it better in the end. Farmers get that. They're patriots. They understand when people don't play by the rules. We've been the Boy Scouts internationally on the trade area, and we've played by the rules, and President Trump is trying to make sure that in this game of international trade, others play by the rules too. Another concern of California's farmers and farmers across the United States, when are these payments going to be made to farmers because of the loss of revenue due to these tariffs? Well, an agriculture department representative told the Wall Street Journal the agency is expected to announce official guidelines for the programs by August 24th and be ready to implement them by September 4th. Farmers would receive payments between September and the end of their harvest and would be required to provide documentation of what they grew. After a visit earlier this week to fire ravage to California, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says there's an urgent need not to just beef up suppression efforts, but also... To dramatically increase our preventative forest treatments. Perdue in a Capitol Hill press briefing Thursday unveiling a new plan on how to do that, a plan that would involve states and environmental groups and such collaborating more closely, sharing resources much more than in the past. He said the federal government doesn't have enough resources to, for example, remove large amounts of dead and dying trees, which help fuel wildfires. Working with the states will provide provide us a strategic plan of where we need to prioritize and begin first. These are going to be joint decisions. This is not federal superiority. This is a recognition of shared stewardship, working with states and local communities, local environmentalists and others to make a plan to make it all uh, better with our healthy forests. And Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski told reporters, This is exactly what we need. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A California jury found Monsanto liable in a lawsuit filed by a man who alleged the company's glyphosate-based weed killers, including Roundup, caused his cancer and ordered the company to pay $289 million in damages. Reuters reports that the case of school groundskeeper Dwayne Johnson was the first lawsuit to go to trial that alleges glyphosate causes cancer. Monsanto faces more than 5,000 similar lawsuits across the United States. The jury at San Francisco Superior Court of California deliberated for three days before finding that Monsanto had failed to warn Johnson and other consumers of the cancer risks posed by its weed killers. It awarded $39 million in compensatory damages and $250 million in punitive damages. Monsanto, in a statement, said it would appeal the verdict. No real relief in sight for the wildfire-plagued West, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, and the latest look at weather in the region. We're going to be dealing with continued elevated temperatures and little, if any, rainfall across the Pacific coast states and the Great Basin, and that may extend into parts of the northwest, the northern Rockies as well. The latest National Interagency Fire Center wildfire count as of Tuesday is 115 wildfires of 100 acres or more in the continental U.S. and Alaska, most of those concentrated in California and the Pacific Northwest. At this time, we have four fires that are approaching or in excess of 100,000 acres including California's Car Fire and Mendocino Complex. And Rippy adds factor in the continued hot, dry weather pattern for the Pacific Coast states. And the wildfire situation, which is already quite tenuous across much of the West, could actually get worse before it gets better. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Rice continues to progress well. Alfalfa was cut and baled in the Sacramento Valley. Down in Fresno, sorghum was progressing well. Dryland wheat continues to be harvested. Cotton is progressing well and was being treated for aphids and ligus. Harvest for onions and garlic is ongoing. In Tulare, corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. Cotton and black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Alfalfa was cut, dried, and baled. Across California, grape vineyards are being irrigated. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Insecticide treatments of grapes continues to control mites and hoppers. Mechanical and manual pruning and thinning of grapes continues. Peaches, nectarines, figs, pears, and plums are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues. Some old orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. Pomegranates were irrigated. Citrus harvest was complete in Fresno County, and orchards were treated with herbicides, foliar fungicides, and sunscreen. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing, but with light volumes. Citrus groves were skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Pushed-out citrus groves are being prepped for planting. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchard irrigation continues. Sunburn protection was applied to some walnut groves. Orchard floors were prepared for harvest. Early almond and pistachio harvest began. Some walnuts are being harvested in Tulare County. In Fresno County, onions, peppers, and sweet corn continue to be harvested. Processing tomatoes were in the Sacramento Valley. Harvest continues for peppers, squash, eggplant, cucumbers, and tomatoes in Tulare County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality, not very good. It's another hot and dry summer week here. Lower elevation ranges and non-irrigated pastures were in poor to fair condition. Cattle were providing supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Wildfires continue to burn forests and rangeland. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. The bees are active in alfalfa and melon fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. So how did you celebrate National Farmers Market Week? It's been going on for 19 years now, as designated by the USDA. And who leads the nation in the number of farmers markets? Why, of course, it's California. Nearly 800 certified farmers markets are in the state, and they're selling healthy and quality produce directly to consumers. It wasn't always that way. Until 1977, California state regulations required farmers to properly pack, size, and label their fresh fruits, nuts, and vegetables in standard containers in order to transport and sell them anywhere other than the farm site. While recognizing the importance of farmer-to-consumer sales, California Certified Farmers Market Program was created with loosened rules. These markets are now part of the fabric of many communities throughout the state. Certified Farmers Markets are an important source of fresh produce to many seniors as well as low-income families who can purchase the fruits and vegetables through the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program, the Women, Infants, and Children Supplemental Nutrition Program, and and the CalFresh program. Want to find a farmer's market near you? Want more information about those specialty programs I just mentioned? Then pay a visit to the CDFA site, the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Do a search at cdfa.ca.gov. 
The American Farm Bureau Federation, American Farm Bureau Insurance Services, and other collaborators have developed a federal crop insurance product to help dairy farmers. AFBF Chief Economist John Newton says the product provides insurance for the difference between the revenue guarantee and actual milk revenue if prices or revenues decline without capping production. We recognize that there are dairy farms of all sizes. We wanted to make a program that would work for small, medium, and large dairies. So there absolutely is no cap on how much much milk you can insure under the Dairy Revenue Protection Program. Producers can use the new program along with the Margin Protection Program. Newton says the program is farmer friendly. The farmer who decides to buy for production they expect to produce has to meet those production thresholds that we set forth in the policy, but we don't need to see that you have plans to move dirt or you bought cows in order to insure that milk that you expect to come online. Newton says policies will be available in October. Crop insurance agents will be able to start unveiling premiums to farmers in a very short period of time. This is going to be on the market for sale October 9th. We've got all of our premium calculators set up so that you can see what premiums would be today if you were to go out and buy a policy. Michael Clements, Washington. For U.S. Rice. What we're looking at here is a lack of export competitiveness for ourselves. Agriculture Department Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer says that's one reason for a less than rosy projection for the U.S. rice sector over the next year. But part of the problem started with this past season's U.S. rice crop. That crop was actually pretty small. So a pretty small area. So it's pretty small production. We weren't very price competitive. That cut our export path. And then now we've seen Asian prices falling again. And U.S. prices are still above the competition. So USDA has cut the U.S. export forecast for the current developing crop by 4 million hundredweight down to 98 million. Still, that would be 13 percent more than this past season. But here's the clincher. The U.S. crop right now is being projected at 18 percent above last year at just under 211 million hundredweight. And that's what's bringing prices down about 60 cents year over year. USDA projecting the average all rice price for the current crop, $11.90 a hundredweight, 60 cents less than what last year's crops likely to average. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. There's no question that high internet speeds, rural broadband is necessary to carry on the business of agriculture in the 21st century. Farmers use the internet in a variety of ways, including help in seeding, fertilization, watering schedules, and a lot more. But more than that, they need high-speed internet to keep their families on the farm. Robert Gore is the co-chair of the California Ag Tech Roundtable Strategic Initiative, and he talks about the needs of the entire rural community for rural broadband. No Ag Tech means no careers for youth in rural California who otherwise leave the farm or can't get jobs because there's no way for them to apply what it is they're learning. A recent federal report indicated that 1.4 million Californians lack access to broadband internet at any speed. The Fresno County Department of Agriculture and the California Department of Pesticide Regulation recently released its top five most common agricultural pesticide use violations of 2017. They include not registering with the county that you intend to work prior to performing pest control activities, not including the application start and stop times, the return entry intervals, or active ingredient in the displayed information. Also, not taking employees suspected of a pesticide illness to the doctor immediately and not posting the name, address, and phone number of the medical facility at the work site. Another violation was storing personal protective equipment in the same place where pesticides are stored. Not cleaning that equipment and checking for wear after each use is also a violation. 
And the top violation, not following label-required buffer zones, setback distance, or vegetative buffer strip requirements, and applying a pesticide to a site or crop that's not listed on the labeling. The opening theme from the Sherlock Holmes TV series Elementary. A couple of seasons ago, there was a storyline in which Holmes and Watson are at a crime scene. They find a package of what appears to be some sort of meat product. They trace it to a laboratory where they find out from the head scientist that the meat was grown there. So is this fake meat? No, it's actually meat. It's 100% American beef. We just grow it here in the lab instead of on a cow. Well, muscle is made of cells. We harvest those cells humanely from living animals and replicate them here. We're still perfecting texture, fat to protein ratio. It's a work in progress. And it turns out this is not science fiction. These products are evolving very quickly. Coming up, meat grown in a lab. Is this really going to happen and when? And for that matter, is it really going to be meat at all? We will uh, meet the uh, questions head on on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. A moment ago, you heard Food and Drug Administration head Dr. Scott Gottlieb say... These products are evolving very quickly. He hosted a big meeting the other day of experts and entrepreneurs about these products, which indeed are evolving so quickly that experts haven't even settled on what exactly to call them. Cell-cultured foods. In vitro meat. Clean meat. Cell-based meat. Real meat made from cells instead of livestock. Well, whatever you call them, Scott Gottlieb says that in order to have a food safety inspection system and product labeling standards in place for when these products are ready for consumers, the government has to start now getting answers to many questions. Questions that are relevant to safety considerations with this technology. What kinds of substances would be used in the manufacture of foods and what are the safety considerations with respect to these? We also want to know if there are any potential hazards from these products that are different from those associated with traditional food production. Now, at the meeting, there were several officials from some of the companies who are working on producing these products and they insist their products will be similar to meat we consume today in all important aspects, except that it is produced in an aseptic environment. Thus, the risk of contamination will be significantly reduced. We believe that people want real fish meat, not an imitation. And so we aim to provide that. The finished product is real, familiar, delicious meat like the kind consumers eat right now. In short, our beef is beef and our chicken is chicken. But, for example, a steak has many cells producing many things, fat, fiber, muscle, etc. So you have to get the cells you're growing to differentiate in just the right proportions. And the so-called holy grail is going to be an actual piece of biomanufactured muscle. The filet or the T-bone steak. And North Carolina State University researcher Paul Mozziak says... There are a lot of technological challenges that need to be overcome. And even if the challenges are met... Cultured tissue for human consumption has many unknowns. Texas A&M researcher Rhonda Miller, she says there are many, many unanswered questions about so-called cultured meat. Here are just a few. Is shelf life the same in cultured tissue and meat from conventional animal production? How does cultured tissue react in different packaging environments? Do spoilage and pathogenic microorganisms grow and proliferate at the same rate in cultured tissue versus meat from conventional animal production? And from a researcher, I can tell you that those are not minor issues. And Miller says meat scientists don't even have enough information on cultured tissue. To determine whether it should be called meat 
or how it should be regulated. Or who should regulate it? What agency should inspect it for safety and create labeling rules for it? Those may be the biggest questions of all. In 1906, Congress gave the U.S. Department of Agriculture responsibility for meat and poultry plant inspection and for product inspection for safety. The Food and Drug Administration assumes the responsibility for almost all other foods. But once again, we are back to the question of, is tissue grown in a lab actually meat? Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told a congressional hearing. Obviously, there are some uh, gray lines between FDA and USDA on many things, but as you well know, meat and poultry has been the sole purview of the USDA. We would expect any product that expects to be labeled as meat would come under that same uh, criteria there. While lawmakers and policymakers try to figure all of this out, the science on this is accelerating. We just got a news story in from the European Union headlined, Lab-Grown Meat Could Be in Stores by 2021. This from a, a meat company in the Netherlands. But there is still a lot of developmental and process work yet to do in the labs working on this around the world. And government policymakers, meanwhile, are trying to figure out how to regulate whatever it is that's going to come out of those labs. As the scientist in that TV show said earlier... It's a work in progress. This work in progress has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. We're talking with a man who says alfalfa may be actually the best crop to have in a drought. So if as you're driving down the highway and you look at those fields and you're saying, it's just grass and they're flooding those fields, what a waste of water. Well, first of all, alfalfa isn't grass. It's a dicot. And second of all, you'd be surprised at the bang for the buck that alfalfa gives for the water it uses and how little water it actually takes. We're talking with Dan Putnam. Dr. Dan Putnam is with the University of California Extension. He is their alfalfa and forage specialist based at Davis. And uh, Dan, I I guess it really is the the fact that people see that flood irrigation on alfalfa fields and and wonder, why, why are we growing this? Well, um, you know, alfalfa is a crop that's grown primarily for uh, protein production, and, and most of it goes uh, for uh, dairy production in California, and um, uh, some percentage goes for um, uh, horses, but primarily it's for dairy uh, production. So if you're having yogurt or cheese um, on your uh, pizza, um, that's that's probably originating from alfalfa. It's, it produces more protein, really, than any other crop. Uh, that we know of uh, per acre. And so um, it's a crop that that, uh, does contribute very much to our food system. um, And a lot of people don't don't always recognize that. Exactly. If people like ice cream or horseback riding, they should be a fan of alfalfa. I would think so, yes. Now, it's amazing in the research you've done about alfalfa is basically how tolerant it is of drought, which a lot of people don't realize. Well, you know, it's been um, something that we've been working on for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, what we call deficit irrigation of alfalfa. So uh, it is true that alfalfa, if you irrigate it fully for the entire year, does use uh, probably an average of about four to four and a half acre feet per year in California. But um, we've found out, and I think a lot of growers have found out, that um, that alfalfa produces, it does something uh, for farmers, which is a lot more high degree of flexibility during a drought period. So we have both research data and on-farm data that shows that um, that one can irrigate alfalfa partially during the year and still obtain fairly reasonable yields, not full yields, but 
but reasonable yields. Um, and uh, that's because it's a crop that's cut anywhere from four to uh, ten times per year. So sometimes growers, when they're short of water, they can sacrifice the later cuttings of the year and um, and be able to survive a, a drought period. And I would think with the first cutting of the year, little irrigation is necessary because it's surviving on winter water, growing, thriving with winter water. Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know, in the northern part of California, where we're um, hopefully we'll get a, a full recharge of rainwater this year, and, and some years we do and some years we don't, um, but... Um, if growers are able to irrigate that crop early uh, or f- make sure that they start with a full profile, they can usually go uh, all the way through um, uh, June or July with moderate irrigation levels and then cut off irrigations at that point um, when still obtained fairly high levels. We have some research data uh, that shows that summer cutoffs on July 1st resulted of, of really it's a 50% cut in, in irrigation water uh, for the season, but we got 80% of full yields during the uh, 2015 year. And we had another treatment where we cut it off at 25% uh, reduction in full water use. So it's a 75% of full water use. And the yields were about 90 to 95% of, of, of full yield. So, um, so this is a, a crop that offers flexibility in, in a drought period, which we don't often see with many of our other crops where you really, if you're, if you're going to produce those crops, you're going to have to irrigate them fully in order to obtain um, any yield whatsoever. Um, and so now there's some other crops that this can be done with, uh, but, but alfalfa is particularly uh, well suited to this. And that's partly because it, it does survive, um, you know, several months of, of dry conditions. You know, we came from, alfalfa came from an area of the world where summer droughts were were the common thing, and um, and so it it is it is a crop that can survive for two three months of of zero uh, irrigation water and come back uh, the you know after being recharged in the fall and the winter and yield something that uh, yield something the following year. So in most cases, the stand has survived uh, these kinds of deficit irrigation strategies and come back to yield normally the following year. What are the origins of alfalfa? Where did it come from? Well, it came from the uh, Near East, uh, Turkey, the Caucasus regions of the uh, of the Near East. Um, it was, you know, it's one of the oldest co- cultivated crops in the world, uh, going back to really several thousand years BC, where it was pretty important to the uh, early civilizations for both horses and military power, as well as for cows and for milk production in the Mediterranean region of uh, the Roman Empire and the Greek empires and the Mesopotamian empires, uh, Persians, uh, all, all used uh, uh, alfalfa pretty widely for, uh, particularly for uh, horses, because, uh, you know, horses were a source of power for those, uh, um, uh, for those civilizations. How many cuttings in Northern California can a farmer expect with alfalfa? Well, we usually typically around the woodland um, uh, Sacramento area uh, or in the Sacramento Valley, we get about six to seven cuttings per year. As you go further south uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, you can uh, usually typically more closer to eight uh, and even sometimes nine cuttings. Uh, In the Imperial Valley, it's usually eight to ten cuttings of alfalfa. And so um, now in the northern 
part of uh, California that is in the Intermountain area, we're typically on a three to four cut system there because they have cold winters and the crop goes completely dormant in the winter time uh, in the Intermountain area. How does alfalfa respond to a drought? Does it come back? Uh, yes, we've we've seen both experimental evidence and on farm evidence that uh, growers who are able to uh, partially irrigate their crop during the year um, and and on good soils with you know reasonable uh, water holding capacity that those crops will hold in there um, and come back and yield normally the next year. We had a, a research trial at the Westside Field Station in Fresno County. Uh, which um, uh, we um, uh, stopped irrigating in 2013 and 2014 and only irrigated partially in 2015. And the crop, strangely enough, is still there. Uh, and we, you know, it was sort of surprised us a little bit because we really tried hard to abuse it. And, and uh, uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough crop when it's well-established like that and it's, able, it's pretty resilient during these, these drought periods. It also has a rather high tolerance to salt, doesn't it? That's another thing that we've been working on at, um, at, at the University of California. And this year we put uh, high salinity waters of somewhere between EC of about uh, 8 electric, electrical conductivity between about 8 and 10. And, um, and the crop is, is a little bit, is somewhat lower yielding under those conditions, but it, it seems to survive. And uh, and we're we're still measuring the effects of salinity on the crop, and I'd say that yes, it's a pretty saline uh, after establishment. I have to uh, put that caveat in, in there is that after it's well established, um, it actually is pretty tough and and resilient under under saline water conditions. Would alfalfa be a good candidate for those municipalities that are recycling their water? Um, yes, actually, and it's been used that way actually pretty commonly in uh, Kern County and Los Angeles County um, have have used alfalfa for that purpose. And the reason for that is that it it's um, it has very high nitrogen uptake levels. And so if, if municipalities are concerned, which I think all, all of them are concerned about uh, the potential for nitrate contamination of groundwater, if you have a deep-rooted crop like alfalfa, um, it's important to... Um, you know, to apply it uh, to match the crop uptake levels. But the fact is, we can we take up somewhere between you know 350 and six or 700 pounds of nitrogen per year in an alfalfa crop, and and maybe even up to a thousand pounds per year, depending upon how high the yields are in the certain area. But it's um, you know it's a crop that can take up very high um, nitrate. Um, uh, waters and and because it does utilize waters um you know throughout the summer uh it can be used that way and it has been used that way in in many uh regions probably the main reason why it is so drought tolerant and uh can thrive is the fact that it has very deep roots just how deep are roots of alfalfa well, you know, I've 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 read uh, some some reports of roots going down to 25 feet. I I'd say it would be pretty unusual but Pretty commonly, we'll see we'll see alfalfa roots down eight eight feet uh, into the ground. Um, it's uh, got a deep tap root that uh, that reaches down much further than most of our uh, annual crops, and uh, is able to extract moisture. And it's part of the reason that I think it it does so well under um, deficit irrigation or drought conditions, um, and is able to pull water from from uh, depths. Now, the folks in Australia 
has have actually used um, alfalfa to uh, draw down their what they call the the saline sumps that they have in some areas of uh, of Australia because it sort of helps to pull that water uh, out of the out of the system. Alfalfa, it just might be the best crop to have in a drought. You can read more about uh, Dan Putnam's research uh, on his blog page at Alfalfa and Forage News. Just do a search for Daniel Putnam and the phrase why alfalfa is the best crop to have in a drought for more details about that. Dr. Dan Putnam, University of California Extension Alfalfa and Forage Specialist in Davis. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you. Back in April, I had a conversation with Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels about the invasive species, the bad pests that are moving into Sacramento County. This is what he had to say. Well, there's uh, there's certainly the brown marmorated stink bug. There's um, the Asian citrus psyllid. And then there's one that people aren't hearing about that much yet. Japanese beetle is a threat to our area. And there's a few others, but those are the most important that are affecting us now. Well, let's start with the Japanese beetle, because if people are from the East Coast, they are very aware of what Japanese beetle can do, especially to ornamental plants like white roses. What are the threats to agriculture from the Japanese beetle? Well, they have a very large host range, just like the brown marmorated stink bug, and they'll, they'll completely devastate a number of different species. It has been found uh, three of the last four years in a location in northern Sacramento County, and that's in, in, you know, one or two. But you find it in the same place, and then, you know, year after year, and then you start to think, well, could it be established? And so far, not yet, but uh, um, there's that potential. That was just a portion of the interview we had with Chuck Engels back in April. Unfortunately... Chuck Engel, Sacramento County Farm Advisor, is no longer with us. He passed away last Sunday. Chuck underwent surgery to remove a brain tumor that was discovered in November of 2017. He had chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and he had made an astonishing rebound. He even returned to work, focusing on projects that he truly loved. Unfortunately, the cancer returned in late May, and it was growing too aggressively to treat. Chuck was more than just a farm advisor. He was a scientist, he was a researcher, he was an engineer, and he was a communicator. He could take all the jargon of science and tell a farmer, tell a gardener exactly what the problem is and how to treat it. He was an excellent communicator. And his kindness was really without boundaries. So many people loved Chuck, including Cooperative Extension's Pam Bone, Sacramento County's original master gardener, as I like to call her. She was part of a committee back in 1996 that was reviewing potential candidates for the Sacramento County Farm Advisor position. And when Pam met Chuck Engels for the first time, she knew that he was right for the job. Chuck uh, applied for the Farm Advisor position that included environmental horticulture and working with the growers, uh, pomology particularly. And there were several different candidates that uh, had applied, and right away, Chuck stood out to me. He was um, dynamic. Uh, his presentation was very uh, interesting and informative, he, but he was down to earth, too. And I think that's the thing that impressed me the most. I said, this is a farm advisor. This is the type of person that can work with the growers. And he also had the responsibility of working with the Master Gardener program. And, uh, you know, the landscapers and other people in the environmental horticulture industry. And I said he could do both. I was extremely impressed with him. And, and ironically, at the time, you did not need a Ph.D., but several people with Ph.D.s had applied. And Chuck had his master's degree. And 
I said, we don't, we don't need a PhD fellow. Some of the people on the committee were kind of impressed with some of those credentials. I said, no, you need somebody that understands research, but also understands how to work with people out in the field. And that was Chuck. And that's what he did the rest of his career. He, uh, he knew how to work with people. He knew how to conduct good research. Uh, he was very good about um, working with uh, commercial growers, but also with the general public, the master gardeners, um, landscape industry, all around just uh, turned out to be the perfect candidate and uh, the perfect farm advisor. The late Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels specialized in pears and wine grapes. He was always looking for ways to increase yield. And one of his thoughts was high-density planning. And that's how he got to meet Ed Livo. Ed Livo at the time was the marketing manager for Dave Wilson Nursery. And Ed had a test plot down in Stanislaw County where he was limiting the height of fruit trees. Ed tells the story of how they met. Chuck and I actually, um, I, I think Chuck called me early on in 96 and, you know, would, was talking to me about you know, the uh, high density planting and high density pruning that I was doing, the work that I was doing, which was roughly about, I don't know, I think I, think I had roughly about 70 trees um, in different um, stages of pruning and, and you know, application. So, you know, I had some hedgerows and I had some three and four in one hole and I had some espaliers and I had some just simply, you know, trees that had been held to 40 inches. And that, that was my big goal back then was 40 inches. It was roughly about oh, maybe six months later, you know, that he had contacted me about um, helping design the uh, Fair Oaks Fort Center for uh, the fruit tree section. So we worked on that together for quite a while. Yes, Chuck is the father of the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, run by the Master Gardeners of Sacramento County. It's not only a test area for home gardeners, but Chuck also envisioned it as a research center for his agricultural clients as well. Um, you know, he could take ideas that um, that I had, and he could just take and make them work right right away. And and had that great team at Fair Oaks to, that he had put together. You know, that uh, just admired him so much to to uh, just jump on board and say, you know, let's, let's do it. And, and he trained them all well, you know, he taught them all to, you know, be, uh, be skeptical. And at the same time, you know, be, uh, be brilliant. I think that that was one of his, uh, one of his true um, talents was that, you know, he would uh, just, just excite people about the ideas that he had. And I, you know, I just think that that's such an important quality in an individual that if you can get people excited about, you know, really good positive ideas, you know, and get people to, you know, motivated to 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 work with you on creating those. I mean, the power of you know people working together. Come on, Chuck. Chuck was a master. I, I mean, I'm I'm just hoping I'm saying it it in in a in an eloquent enough way, you know, to be able to emphasize. You know how important Chuck was to my career. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to say somebody, you know, was a great person. You know, when you have, you know, we all have our careers, we all have our, you know, our things that sustain us. And you know, it, it's one thing to say that you have a colleague or a friend. You know, Chuck Chuck actually helped my career dramatically, and uh, and I, I'm only I, I'm. Oh, very so grateful 
that I was able to tell him that weeks or maybe months, a couple of months ago when we had a long conversation. Um, and I was able to, <clears throat> excuse me, I was able to uh, express, you know, my gratitude and my, my appreciation for our relationship, you know, through the years. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, that, um, that I'll be very grateful for that. I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity. The director of the UC Cooperative Extension Capital Corridor Division is Morgan Duran. And in a letter to staff, he said Chuck's absence will leave an enormous void in all of us who knew and worked with him. He exuded an incredible energy for living a life close to nature, especially plants. He loved to stay fit. He loved to be near people he enjoyed and doing what he felt was right. Cooperative Extension's Pam Bone chimes in that Chuck was one of a kind. Chuck Ingalls was an amazing advisor. He was a wonderful person and friendly, helpful. I love that he was my colleague and I got to work with him and he will be sorely missed within the horticulture community, whether it's the commercial horticulture, landscape horticulture, or the general public master gardeners. He, uh, he's going to be very hard to replace. Again, Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels passing away on Sunday, August 12th due to a malignant brain tumor. A public celebration of life is still in the planning stages. Sympathy cards can be addressed to the Cooperative Extension Office in Sacramento County at 4145 Branch Center Road, Sacramento, 95827. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.